lest uh, the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up and out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Uh, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel day and night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. When the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihiroth in front of Baal Zephon. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O oh Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. It's your function, it's your job uh, within the Godhead to be at work now. Uh, would you open our minds, our ears to hear, our minds to understand, our hearts to believe and embrace. We pray all of this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think it's easy for us sometimes uh, when when we're reading the Bible, when we're uh, reading about God's people and um, whether individuals or as a, a nation as they sort of are becoming here. I mean, this really is the beginning of Israel as a, a people, as a, as a nation. I think it's easy for us from where we're sitting to look at them and um, mock them. Is, is that too strong? When they stumble in their faith. When they have doubts, when they have uncertainties and concerns, when they go through life and think, um, you know, this just isn't fair. Things just aren't the way they should be. I think it's easy for us to look at Peter, for example, and and almost make fun of him um, or or to at least look down on him and condemn him. I mean, we would never deny Jesus three times in front of this young servant girl right after Jesus has been arrested. I know better than that. I would never do that. It's all too easy for us um, to, to, to condescend, to look down on um, 
people who are weak in their faith, who stumble, who struggle, when life throws them curveballs. But do we not do that ourselves? Are there, are there really, is there really no time in our life when life kind of comes at us and, and we're thrown this curveball and we don't stumble and fall? We don't doubt. We don't deny Christ. Every time a coworker gives us an opportunity to talk about Jesus, we take it. Every chance for evangelism we have, we take it. Every time we go through some difficult struggle or conflict in life, we never shake our fist at God and say, how dare you? This is all your fault. Why is it that we think that living where we live now, we're somehow incapable of fear and doubt. Uh, we're incapable of blaming God when the events of our lives turn less than joyful. We can be quick to point out weakness in other people without ever noticing it in ourselves, without ever seeing it in our own lives. But we do this. We're just as guilty. God, this is your fault. God, why on earth are you taking me through this? God, why on earth are you making me walk this difficult road? Why can't you set my feet on easy street? Because that's exactly where I belong. How dare you make me walk some difficult struggle in life. See, it's, it's in those moments that we forget two very important truths. Truths that are emphasized in this passage in Exodus 13 and 14. See, the time has come for Israel to finally leave Egypt. Uh, it's only taken ten plagues. It's only taken the death of the firstborn son, particularly Pharaoh's uh, firstborn. And so with that, he finally says, okay, Moses, get out of here quick. And when Israel does leave, they start taking stuff from the Egyptians. They've, they've essentially plundered Egypt without having to go to war to do so. They just, they just asked, if you recall, they basically said, Hey, you've got some gold in there. I'd love some of that. And, and the people said, okay, here, take it. And when they left, they left with stuff from their neighbor's houses, from the homes of the people around them. God has been promising to free his people from slavery in Egypt, and he's been doing it for months and years. Uh, okay, for us, it may feel like months and years because as we work through Exodus, uh, it's not really been that long. But it's been seven chapters, six chapters for us. Uh, for Israel, it's been nine chapters or ten chapters for Moses. He learned about this back at the burning bush back ages ago. And did you notice the first thing that we're told in this passage? God brought the people out of Israel and He pulled up Google Maps on His phone and He entered the destination. He entered Canaan. But then, you know how Google Maps gives you, you know, it's 10 hours and 9 minutes if you take this way. It's 10 hours and 32 minutes if you go this way. It's 14 hours and 47 minutes if you go this way. And you look at it and you go, why would you even give me that option? God, when he pulled up the address in Google Maps, he didn't choose give me the shortest route. He said, give me the longest way. Avoid tolls. 
Avoid highways. Avoid interstates. Let's turn off all the things that would get us there quickly. And let's go the long way. He's taking Israel the long way to Canaan. Now, the thing is, you and I should already know that it's really not a very long trip. In fact, literally this past week, somebody I was reading, somebody I was listening to, I kind of had this, oh, duh, like that's so obvious. It really is like a 10 or 15 day trip that will take them 40 years. Because instead of going north to Canaan, God leads them southeast towards the Red Sea. That, you know, those, those times when Google Maps says, trust me, it really does make sense to go south, to go north this time. And you're thinking, that never makes sense. That's exactly what God is doing here. He's taking them the long way. Because we could read back in the last 10 chapters of Genesis and see Joseph's brothers making this trip multiple times. They came to get supplies during the famine. They bought their supplies and they went home. They had to go get Benjamin. They had to go get Jacob. But back and forth, they're making this trip from Canaan to Egypt. And so what really should take them 10 or 15 days, okay, it was... It was Joseph's brothers. That was a smaller group. This is much larger with a much wider age range probably. So let's give them the benefit of the doubt. 25 days at the outside is all it really should have taken. And yet what we find is this trip ultimately will take them 40 years. They're going the long way. Moses is carrying Joseph's bones. We, we read in verse 19. It's the fulfillment of a centuries-old promise to Joseph. He had made his, as he was dying, he, he, he made his brothers, he made his nieces and nephews and sons and daughters promise that when they left Egypt, they would take his bones with them. You, you know... That request was an act of faith on Joseph's part. Right? You know what faith is? Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, it's grabbing hold as reality that which is promised and not yet visible to our eyes. And Joseph grabbed hold of the promise that God would deliver his people and set them in the promised land. And when he did, he said, take my bones with you. I want to be buried in the promised land. I don't want to be left here in Egypt. But it's also an act of faith on Moses' part. To actually carry this, this coffin. I don't know how the bones were carried. I just made that up. Um, to carry Joseph's coffin with them for 10 or 15 days is one thing. For 40 years to drag this box around with Joseph's bones in it. See, before we moved to Athens, we made several trips up here. Um, you know, figure out the lay of the land, looking for a house, all that sort of stuff. 
Um, and, and on those trips, we never once carried anything that would stay here. So we didn't have a place to put it. It wasn't until we actually you know, bought a house and the moving truck showed up, we actually brought a sofa and a dresser and a bed and stuff like that and, and had a house to, to put it in. You don't carry a sofa with you on a house hunting trip. You, you don't carry a sofa with you if after you leave Athens, you're going to go back to Oxford and it's going to be a few more days, weeks, months, years before you get here. In other words, Moses grabbed the coffin on the way out because he knew he wasn't coming back. It's an act of faith on Joseph's part to ask to make this request. It's an act of faith on Moses' part to to carry these bones with him. He knew he would get to Canaan and he would be able to fulfill Joseph's requests and that he wasn't coming back to Egypt. You and I are called to live by faith. We're called to live as though the the new creation is a reality, even though our eyes and ears don't yet perceive it. Even though we don't see sinlessness in ourselves, even though we don't see sinlessness in our spouse and our children and our parents, even we don't even though we don't see sinlessness in our neighbors or or co-workers, that day's coming. You and I are called to live as though the promises of God are truly yes and amen. We live now as though that eternal day is already a reality. We're called to live by faith. We're also called to die by faith. That that Joseph made funeral plans not based on his current condition, but on the promises of God for eternity. Will you let your assurance of salvation, your, this hope of a bodily resurrection and eternity with Jesus in the new heavens, the new earth, will you let that affect your funeral plans? Think about this for a second. This long way, the, the long way that Israel goes from Egypt to Canaan, it's a, it's a long way for Moses and the people of Israel. What should have taken um, t- 10, 15, 20 a, a month, what should have taken a month takes 40 years. I should have done the math. I can't do that quickly in my head. But for Joseph, it's actually hundreds of years. He made that request not to the people who are leaving Egypt. To their great, 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 I don't know how many, grandparents. I want my bones to go with you. So what what seems long to you and me sometimes is actually much, much longer for people who died in faith long before we ever lived. So what we shake our fist at God about. You're taking too long. This is too slow. This can't possibly be right. Others are going, you think you've waited a long time. I've been buried for centuries and I'm still waiting. God takes them the long way. The Israelites, however, are convinced it's the wrong way. Notice the way they react. They they get to what appears to be 
Um, they're this trapped piece of land between Migdal and the Red Sea. Uh, they seem to be sort of hemmed in there because even Pharaoh goes, oh, look, the wilderness has shut them in. The sea is there. God made, it seems they got to the sea and the God said, turn back a little bit and make up camp right here. So there's this, there's this really cool ancient castle on the north coast of Northern Ireland, Dunluce Castle. And it's built on this tiny little peninsula. Now it's ruins now. But I mean, it's, it was built 600 years ago. One family has owned it for more than 500 of those 600 years, by the way. Uh, but Dunluce Castle is built on this little peninsula that sticks out into the sea between Northern Ireland and, and across the sea directly north is the island of Isla of Scotland. And, and it's a great fortress if, if you're going to live there and you're going to defend it because because any naval attack you can see coming from miles away and any land attack has to come out on this tiny little piece of land and so you narrow that army down and it's easy to defend it's a terrible place to be if you're actually trying to get across the sea and you don't have a boat that's where israel seems to be on this little tiny little peninsula sticking out into the sea with no place to go because they don't have a boat to get across the water. And then Pharaoh suddenly comes to his senses, um, if you will. He kind of wakes up, uh, verse 5, and says, uh, y'all, we've made a mistake. We've let our slaves go. And, and, and without our slaves, who's going to build the pyramids? Who's going to make rocks? Who's going to cook supper? Whatever it was the Israelites were doing for the Egyptians, there's no one left to do it. And so Pharaoh realizes we've made a mistake. We've let our servants go. We have to go back and get them. And, and in his mind, oh, look, they're sitting ducks. This is going to be like shooting fish in a barrel because they're stuck out on this little piece of property between Migdol and the sea. You can almost imagine the Israelites waking up one morning and to the sound of thunder. And they, they, you know, you unzip your tent, you know, you stick your head out and you're like, it's sunny. Where's the sound of thunder coming from? Because you get the sense that they look up and they see this big giant cloud of dust coming at them. And it's hundreds of thousands of Egyptian soldiers and chariots and they're coming to attack Israel. And so what they thought was thunder seems to be this massive army coming their way. You know, when, you're, when your situation seems insurmountable, when, when, when life seems to throw you that curveball and, and you feel trapped by maybe difficult, difficulty one way, danger some other way, how do you react? How do you respond? What's your reaction in those moments when, when you sort of realize I'm stuck here? And there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. Because the Israelites shake their fists 
at God and at Moses. They start complaining. God, you have completely messed this up. And Moses, you're an idiot. I can't believe you brought us out here. Look at verses 10 to 12 of chapter 14. Pharaoh drew near. The people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, hey, look, there's a big giant army coming at us. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, so complaint number one, are you telling me there were no graves in Egypt? Because we could have just died there. I mean, like, if you really brought us out here to die here and just leave our bodies here on this little spit of land sticking out into the Red Sea, then, then, then I mean, we could have just stayed in Egypt and, and we could have died there because surely they can find a place to bury a few million Israelites in this big old giant desert they call Egypt. So that's, that's complaint number one. Complaint number two uh, is... Um, Didn't we tell you, verse 12, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone. We want to serve the Egyptians. We want to be slaves. We're good. Moses, leave us alone. We're happy. We're perfectly content being servants in Egypt. I can't recall ever hearing them say that. In fact, just a second. Turn back to Exodus chapter 2. Let me just show you real quick where they've actually said anything but that. The very end of Exodus 2, verse 23. During those days, uh, this is before the burning bush, mind you, right? The burning bush is chapter 3. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. That's not, hey, leave us here. We're happy. That's someone come get us. We're in a bind. Turn to chapter five. In chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, um, this is right after they've been told to make bricks without straw. Now, you know, we were the state provided you the straw and you made bricks. Now you have to go find the straw yourself. Verse 20 and 21, this is the closest they get to saying, hey, leave us alone. We're happy here. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord, look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. And I put a sword in their hand to kill us. Okay, they're not happy. But that also doesn't sound like we love being slaves in Egypt. Leave us alone. We want to stay. How often when we're stuck in a difficult place and we're convinced that there's this mistake on God's part, that there's this thing in our life that that God, you are messing this up. This is the wrong way. You have you've made some giant mistake. How many times do we find ourselves actually making our story worse than it really is? We sort of accentuate the problem just to make us feel better and God to look worse. We we actually add to the issue, we add to the conflict, we embellish just a little bit so that we can feel better about ourselves that, that we really are the good guy. 
And that in this instance, God, you're actually the bad guy. God, you're actually the one causing the problem. Not only that, but we lose sight of all the blessings in our lives because this one sliver of, of whatever the issue is, whatever the, the conflict is, whatever the danger is, whatever the problem is, whatever the pain is, it, it takes over everything and we ignore all the blessings and the graces that we've received at God's hand and we make Him out to be an ogre. We make Him out to be stingy and, and selfish and, and not gracious and not merciful and, and withholding all kinds of things for us. Just think about what the Israelites have seen in recent weeks, months, years at this point, right? I mean, there were plagues in Egypt, except in Goshen where they lived. Like literally there were there was an entire plague that would would cause all kinds of cattle, locusts, and 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 yet it didn't happen where they were. You you can't I think I mentioned this before. You you can't build a wall to keep the Madison County flies out of Limestone County. That happened during the plagues. The firstborn son, Pharaoh's son, died. There's anybody who had the, the, the blood of the lamb painted on the doorposts, their firstborn didn't die. And as they've been leaving, they've been following a giant cloud that protected them from the heat as they traveled by day. And a big giant fireball in the sky to give them light so they could travel at night. It's amazing the obvious blessings we ignore just to grumble and complain about one issue, about one problem, as though God really is just that stingy. We start, we turn all Janet Jackson on him. What have you done for me lately? God led them the long way, which they are convinced is the wrong way, but we discover turns out to be the strong way. Notice there are two themes that run through this passage, and the themes have actually almost nothing to do with where Israel is coming from or where they're going. The two themes instead have to do with the one who's going with them. The focus in this passage isn't so much leaving Egypt. And it isn't going to Canaan. It's God being with His people the whole way. God's presence with His people regardless of the situation and His glory over the nations. Look at verses 21 and 22 of chapter 13. You've got this pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel day and night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, did not depart from the people. We even use the phrase day and night to mean all the time. Non-stop. This child of mine, this baby of mine, cries day and night. And we mean like all the time. It seems like it's incessant. It never stops. 
That's part of the point. God is with his people all the time, day and night. Oh, wait, I guess I shouldn't say that angrily, should I? He's, he's with his people in this cloud by day and fire by night. He provides shade and protection for them and light so they can see to travel when it's dark out. In other words, he's, he's protecting them, he's providing for them, he's caring for them, even as they travel, even as they've gotten to this place. But not only does he lead them to this little tiny piece of land between Migdal and the sea. Notice what happens when Pharaoh's army approaches. He actually steps between, look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 14. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. God put himself between Egypt and Israel. He literally stepped between his people and their danger. God is our shield. The Lord is our protector. He is our defender. God is with his people day and night. That's part of the big deal about Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us. Literally the Hebrew words, with us God, stuck together to make a name. God with his people. That's really the, the beauty of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, in Him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it, acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. God dwells with his people by his spirit who guarantees that his promised deliverance, his promised salvation cannot fail. Regardless of your situation, God is with you. But he's not just with you. He's also going to be glorified over the nations and over your situation. Look back at verse 17 of chapter 13. See, it would be easy for the Israelites to complain, God, you, you took us the long way. This is the wrong way. You've taken us the long way. And that's not the way we're supposed to be going. We should be going the shorter way. Except, notice the grace and the mercy in this trip. God didn't take them the shorter way because that would have led them through the land of the Philistines. And surely would have led to war. And surely would have been morally, would have been demoralizing to the Israelites. There's, there's actually many times grace and mercy in our difficult circumstances because it is not wrong to say, you know, things could be worse. He protected them from battle with the Philistines by taking them the long way around, but so that he might show his power and authority over 
his enemies. You know, when we grumble about our situation, our condition, whatever difficult thing is going on in our life, when when we start to grumble and, and complain about that and shake our fist at God, we're basically saying we deserve better. You owe me more. My life shouldn't be this difficult. It should be easier. You owe me more than that. We think that God owes us something safer or sweeter or prettier, that he's being stingy and not giving it to us. But in this instance, it's an opportunity for him to show his power over his and our enemies. Look at verse 4 of chapter 14. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Look at verse 17. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. What seemed like the wrong way ends up being a sign of God's grace and care for his people and a sign of his commitment to his glory. He will defeat all his and our enemies. And God's presence assures us of that truth. He's going to show his power over this foreign ruler who wants God's people destroyed. God will not let his people be destroyed. The Israelites, of course, pass through this Red Sea on dry land. The the water stands up and creates these giant walls and they walk through the sea. And so Egypt's like, sweet, we're in. And they come flying in after them and yet there's mud and the the wheels won't roll and they they can't walk through. And then suddenly the, the water collapses on them. And we're told that Pharaoh and his entire army was destroyed. And at the end of it all, we find that God alone stands with his people. And his enemies have been defeated. His enemies have been destroyed. God proves his power and glory and authority over all of creation and over the powers and nations and kingdoms of this world. And he does that even more clearly in the cross of Christ. When our greatest enemy, the one that can do more harm to us than the one that might kill our body. When sin itself is destroyed. When Satan is defeated. And, and Jesus rises again from the dead and defeats even death itself. That, that last sort of powerful bullet that sin can shoot at us. Jesus grabs, smushes, and t- tosses aside. He's defeated our enemies for us. He has defeated sin and death for us. And so we look to him and there find the hope of our own salvation. We look in faith to Christ. We believe on him. We trust in him as our defender, as the one who has fought the battle for us, who has defeated sin and Satan Yes, there may be battles along the way, but it will never turn the tide of war in their favor. So when you wonder 
when you doubt, when you question God's love and care for you because your condition seems grim, look to the cross. And there be reminded, oh, that's right. That's how much He loves me. That's how much He cares for me. Yes, this might deal with the body. Yes, this condition, the situation I'm in, it, it, it may kill my body and that's fine. But it can never separate me from the love of God. It can never separate me from Christ. May He grant us the grace to trust in Him. Let's pray together.